calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, listeners. Before we get into today's, before I start with today's episode, I wanted to give a little bit of a trigger warning, as this episode will be discussing child abuse and the exploitation of minors. So please listen with caution. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hi, everyone. I hope we are doing well on this Monday morning. If you're listening to this episode the day that it is released, I hope you had a fantastic, restful, or exciting weekend. Whatever kind of weekend you were hoping for, I hope that's what you got. I just said goodbye to my mother. She is heading back to the Midwest. We had a good, solid five days together or so. It was a bit of a bummer because I wasn't really feeling well for most of it, so my energy wasn't the best. But we got our shopping time in, and we had some lovely dinners out together. Max got to cook for her. She's obsessed with the gumbo that he makes. So we had a lot of really good time together, and I'm always so, so thankful to be able to spend time with the amazing Mama Liz. Mentioning that I wasn't feeling well, I also apologize if I still sound a little bit congested. I feel pretty good today, but I think I might still have a bit of gunk sitting up in my head. Sorry for all of that graphic information, everybody. But overall, I'm feeling pretty good and I'm ready to do this episode. But before we get into what we're chatting about today, I do want to talk a little bit about Patreon. So in order to save my sanity a little bit this month, instead of reading a book, I am going to cover two different documentaries for the Angry Feminist Book Club on Patreon. And the first one that I'm going to be covering is Dope is Death. I've been recommending this documentary on the show and to all of my friends in real life because I think it is such an important story. And it's a story that I had never heard of before. And through working with my friend India on our new show, Still Learning, I was able to meet the documentary filmmaker and one of the people that was involved in the film who is a NADA expert who uses acupuncture as a form of detox therapy for people who are detoxing off of drugs. And it's a really, really fascinating story of how this group came together and the story of Matulu Shakur, the stepfather of Tupac Shakur. It's a fantastic documentary. I'm going to watch it again, take lots of notes on it and discuss it. And that episode should be up sometime this week. I will let you know more details on Patreon. So be sure to be checking your email for any notifications for new posts there. I'm also going to be starting another segment on the Feminist Faves level of Patreon where I am going to be doing little recaps after each of these full-length episodes. I talk about it a bit in the mini episode because there's so many times when I'm done with these episodes that I'm like, oh shit, I forgot to add that little piece of information or maybe there was something that I would have loved to have talked about but it was off topic from the story that I was trying to tell about a certain person or a certain topic. 
So I figured it would be kind of fun for me to have a sort of recap episode, a short little time for me to be able to talk about any of those things that I missed or extra things that I wanted to mention about a certain topic or maybe go further into something that's a little bit more of a side research topic so it doesn't take up as much of the episode, so on and so forth. I think that's going to be really fun for everyone who wants to get a little bit of extra information on any of the topics that I discuss in the full-length episodes. And I haven't decided yet if I'm going to release that on Monday, so the day that the episode is released, or if that's going to be released on Tuesday. So I will release that information shortly. And then in 2024, instead of the Angry Feminist Book Club, I will be starting Mad Gabin with Madigan. So keep an eye out for that, for a place for you to be able to submit any of your secrets, your confessionals, your questions, anything you want to say. I think it's going to be very, very fun I'm really looking forward to interacting with everyone more through Patreon. So I think that that will be a really, really fun and exciting thing for all of us to do together and for all of you to listen to as well. If any of that sounds interesting to any of you, you can just go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist and become a patron. You can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month, or you can become a feminist fave for $8 a month, where you get all of the book club content, you get these episodes ad-free, you get them a little bit early, and now you are going to be receiving at least one bonus episode per week in the Feminist Faves section, which will be the recap episode. Okay, I think that that is everything that I wanted to fill you in on on my end here. So let's get into the topic of today's episode. I don't know what I'm going to call this yet, but today I wanted to talk about family vloggers and some of the dangers, particularly regarding the children in these families on some of these YouTube channels, TikTok channels, Instagram, so on and so forth. Because in the past decade or so, becoming an influencer online has become a legitimate career path for many. Family influencer pages and parent-facilitated content pages have gained popularity with all ages of viewers on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and more. They post videos documenting their daily life and content includes prank videos, pregnancy and gender reveal announcements, product reviews, family updates, and sponsored content, which really pays the big bucks. Some families make upwards of $40,000 per sponsored Instagram post and have amassed massive amounts of wealth, making it possible for them to buy expensive homes, take luxurious vacations, and quit their day jobs in order to become full-time influencers. These families also become so popular that they even release their own merch, organize meet and greets, and more to generate even more revenue. But while the parents are building a brand... What about the kids? Many parent influencers share very intimate details about their kids' lives, leaving them vulnerable to their image being taken by predators and other nefarious people on the internet. Over the past few years, the veil has finally begun to lift on the reality of the multi-million dollar business that is family vlogging. Issues have arisen such as child exploitation, privacy violations, abuse, and religious prejudice. Parents are free to record their child and post videos online with very minimal laws regulating it. Did you know that child labor laws don't even apply to YouTube? When the main attraction of these family vlogs are the children, shouldn't there be more in place to protect them? They say that money is the root of all evil, and parents who run these family vlogs often become obsessed with money and views, so obsessed that they end up posting content that's inappropriate or force their kids to perform even when they don't want to. A good example of this that I came across in my research was a video from the Ace Family channel on YouTube. I'm going to preface before I get into this that I personally have never been into the family vlogger stuff, maybe because I'm not a mom or those things just don't really feel like they apply to me. But my experience with it has mostly been through nannying children who really, really like watching these YouTube videos. And I had actually had the experience or I guess the assumption that it was mostly kids who are watching these videos. But in a lot of the articles that I was reading and research for this episode, there were a lot of grown adults 
that were very comforted by these videos and were checking their Instagram pages every day and watching the new videos they uploaded every day. And while I'm trying not to be judgmental of the people that enjoyed watching these videos, it is a little bit strange that there would be grown people enjoying watching these children's daily lives. It just seems very mundane and plain. And those are the kind of things that I feel like the kids that I take care of that watch YouTube really enjoy. It's just kind of the monotony of the daily life. But anyway, there is a family in particular that I came across in my research that I feel like is a really good example of displaying how these parents can really seem to be forcing their children to perform. And that is the Ace family. They have 18.6 million subscribers on YouTube, even though they have continually made waves on the internet for their behavior in their videos. A little bit of background on them. The parents are Austin and Catherine McBroom, and they created the channel in 2016 when they just had their first child. We'll call her E. So the name Ace comes from Austin, Catherine, and their child E, Ace. Austin was a college basketball player, and Catherine was already an influencer when they got together. In their first video, Catherine explains that a psychic told her she was going to have three children when Catherine was just 10 years old. And she also said that this psychic told her she was going to meet Austin. And this has nothing to do with anything, but I found it such a strange fact because I'm like, okay, did the psychic say Austin's name? Did she describe him? How on earth did she know you were going to meet this person and what did she say to you? When discussing how many kids he wants, Austin says, we're not stopping till I have a little mini me, a little boy, which is just so gross. And I feel like that is also something that's really common in a lot of these videos. And I'm going to be bringing up a lot of examples of this is just like extreme misogyny and how normalized it is. Like how many videos have you seen of a father at a gender reveal party and when the pink smoke comes out they throw an absolute fucking fit it's just such toxic masculinity bullshit this guy's like nope i'm not gonna let my wife stop popping babies out until i have a little boy <sighs> disgusting Austin has also created most of the controversy with allegations of cheating, assault, and apparently they also threw a disastrous overpriced festival a la Firefest. They're also currently dealing with several lawsuits regarding breach of contract, fraud, not paying workers, and bad business practices. Controversy arose in 2019 when Austin bought a phallic-shaped lollipop for a little girl who was thought to be an extended member of the family, and his explanation after this video caused outrage was that the little girl had said that she was going to steal the lollipop if he didn't buy it, which this is the time to put your parenting skills to the test here, Austin. One, you can explain to the child that we can't always get the things that we want just because we want them. It's like, yes, this lollipop looks delicious, little child, but just because we want something doesn't mean that we can get it. You could explain to them why this isn't an appropriate treat for them. You could say, you know what, actually, this is made for grown-ups. This isn't okay for little kids. For the most part, I feel like kids understand that in a way because they think there's something dangerous involved or whatever, where it's only grown-ups allowed. But you can also just explain to the little girl that stealing is wrong. I kind of feel like by buying her this lollipop, you're kind of reinforcing to her that she can just make a big enough stink about something or threaten to steal and then she's going to get what she wants. You don't just go ahead and buy the kid the dick lollipop and then you don't take a video of it and put it on YouTube. Like, What are you thinking? And also, I'm sorry to be harping on this so much, but like where is this child in a place where there are dick pops being sold anyway? <laughs> like does Spencer's sell things like that? I don't know. It just seems very strange. The whole circumstance is just very icky and gross to me. 
Like most people who have become famous, Austin's tweets have also been combed through and people found a bunch of old tweets where he was saying some really horrible things about Black and Asian women. And in response to this, Austin brought his mother into the fold where she said in a video that her son can't be racist because she herself is Black and that Austin is a mix of Black, White, Mexican, and Puerto Rican and refers to her son as being a jokester. I just find that defense to be so despicable because I think that you can display or perpetuate very racist things, even if you are a member of that race. Granted, I am a white person telling you this. I have no authority in that. That's just based on what I've learned. And honestly, I think just based on being a human being, anyone can be racist or can be discriminatory. And There is such a long history of Black women in particular being put down, and that happens by a lot of Black men as well. So to me, that really isn't an excuse for what he had to say. Lastly, there was a viral clip that circulated around which shows how staged the Ace Family videos are. In the clip, they're getting ready to start a video and Catherine, the mom, is like, hi, you know, like, welcome to our channel or whatever. And then when Austin sees his hair and how ridiculous it looks, he starts angrily swearing at Catherine and the kids start to look like super scared and uncomfortable. But then they kind of like reset the shot and start the video again. And then all of a sudden, it's like the kids are back to their big smiling selves and they're on and they're ready to go. And it just seems really obvious how forced this is and it also really shows the control that the parents have over their kids lives and I'm going to get into this as I go through more and more of these stories but something that I struggle with is that these kids are pretty much working from home there's no work life balance for these children and because there can be a camera shoved in their face at any time these kids feel like they always have to be on and on their best behavior and ready to perform and that's not fair to a child's psyche it's not fair to a parent-child relationship where a kid can be really honest about how they're feeling and what they're wanting to do and in this video it's just a very clear example of how Parents can really manipulate their children into being a part of this job that they really cannot consent to being a part of. And when it comes to the worst of the worst abuse behind the scenes of these family vlogs, the person that I now think of first and foremost is a woman by the name of Ruby Frank. And if you haven't heard of Ruby Frank, you've been living under a rock because this woman has made major headlines for the horrendous abuse that she put her children through throughout the years that she had a YouTube channel with her now ex-husband called Eight Passengers, but then also with this group that she created with her friend Jody and the abuses that they perpetrated on their children together. So let's get into that a little bit. Ruby Frank and her husband Kevin started the Eight Passengers YouTube channel in early 2015, documenting their life in Utah. Yes, that's another thing. Many of these influencer families are Mormon and from Utah, and that's something that I'm going to get into a little bit later in the episode, but I wanted to bring it up now just so you can kind of stick a pin in it and remember that for later. Ruby and Kevin are parents of six, six kids ranging in age as of this year from 17 to six years old, and they are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church. When the channel first emerged, she was giving nearly constant content with a new video posted five days a week, every day at 6 a.m. In the span of its life on the internet, eight passengers accumulated over a thousand videos and just an astronomical amount of viewers and followers. A lot of Ruby's videos contain lessons with spiritual undertones and sometimes reference traditional values, so it's very clear the demographic they're going for. 
In a broader stance, people criticized the show for the style of content altogether, with Ruby being one of many content creator parents who forced their children too young to consent or know what they're doing to trade their privacy for financial gain. A lot of what Ruby does is her video is like sit down with her children and have them explain the bad things they've done and the punishments they received. And it's all very shame based and making these children admit to either certain things they've done wrong or admit to certain secrets or intimate details of their lives. And people have also really pointed out how these parenting, quote unquote, techniques that they're using are actually just really abusive. And it really is shocking to me that she was able to remain on YouTube so long and talk about the way that she would discipline her children without something happening sooner. Because in 2020, there was a video release that showed one of Ruby's sons, who was 15 years old at the time, saying that he had been banned from his bedroom and made to sleep on a beanbag chair for seven months. He went on to explain that this was his punishment for pranking his little brother. And to me, the prank is pretty innocent. He told his little brother that they were going to go to Disneyland. Then his brother got all excited and started packing a bag for the trip. And then they were like, just kidding. Like, I don't really think that that's that mean. I feel like that's something that I've probably seen in another YouTube video before. But then I also read that apparently this brother also hung his little brother from a basketball hoop. And like, yeah, that's not cool. Don't do that. But I also don't feel like the appropriate punishment would be to make your child sleep on a beanbag chair in an open part of the family home for seven months. It seems like pretty normal brother stuff, if you ask me. Then again, I'm an only child, so what do I know? According to pediatricians, when we take a child's bed away, we are stripping them of a sense of safety and security in their environment. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, our psychological needs are at the very, very base, the things we most need in order to achieve higher levels of our needs, and that includes things like breathing, food, water, shelter, clothing, and sleep. By taking away your child's room, aka their shelter or safe space, and their sleep, their bed, you're creating an unstable and unsafe environment for your kids. Taking these things away adds stress to the child, which can lead to damaging psychological effects, and it could even lead to your child acting out even more. Ruby tried to defend her choices in an interview with Insider, stating that the beanbag comment had been taken out of context, as the teen had a choice of sleeping on a blow-up or pull-out mattress, but declined and chose to sleep on the beanbag chair. But even so, you still took your son's safe space away. It doesn't matter what the alternative was to the beanbag chair. It just seems like a really, really extreme punishment. I remember when I was a kid, the big punishment was taking the bedroom door off the hinges. And I remember finding that really fucked up as a kid too, because everyone deserves privacy. One day your kids will be adults and it's important to teach them to have responsibility when they're in private and show them the importance of independence so that they can make good choices for themselves. Plus, everyone deserves to have a little bit of secrecy in their lives and have things that are just for them. And by taking away someone's room and their safe space, it's just showing them that that isn't okay and that isn't allowed. There's another video, and I think this was one of the first videos that I saw on Instagram of Ruby's deplorable behavior, but she's talking to her phone about how her daughter's school has to keep calling her because her daughter didn't bring her lunch with her to school, and Ruby was talking about how she refuses to bring lunch to her kid. And she's defending this by saying that she was teaching her daughter personal responsibility and that she'll be fed as soon as she gets home. This is just so fucked up. Kids are kids. They're not going to remember everything that they are supposed to have all the time for school. And I get teaching personal responsibility, but the way to teach that is not by withholding food from your child. 
In fact, threatening to withhold food was a common trend in Ruby's videos. They also talk about sending one of their kids to a wilderness camp for troubled teens. They threaten to behead a beloved stuffed animal in another one. And in yet another video, they threatened that Santa Claus wouldn't be coming for the kids that year. In response, a Change.org petition was created, which reported perceived child abuse and neglect. Ruby and Kevin separated in 2022, and the Eight Passengers YouTube channel was deleted. Ruby then took up a job as a mental health coach, fantastic, at a company called Connections, which was run by counselor Jody Nan Hildebrandt, who was a friend of Ruby's. And they started another YouTube channel all about connections that was also like a parenting YouTube channel. This company clearly has a lot of religious undertones, but the website claims that their principles are not tied to religion, but that they believe a higher power exists and that you need divinity in your life to experience lasting transformation. So pretty religious, if you ask me, especially since higher power was capitalized, as was the word divinity. It's usually a pretty good indicator that something is uh, pretty loaded with Christian ideology. This company has received complaints about their parenting advice, including shame-based learning and shunning those who don't share your values. So a little bit about Jody. Jody was a therapist, but she actually had her license suspended in 2012 after disclosing a patient's porn addiction to his Mormon church leaders, which is a big no-no. You are not supposed to share your patient's confidential information with anyone, not even their church leaders. And she then appealed the suspension and the discipline was eventually removed in 2017. But under Utah law, the fact that she did have her license suspended has to stay on the Utah licensing website for 10 years. So they were running this sketchy parenting advice sort of YouTube channel company. I don't even know. But it seems like it wasn't able to survive for too long because in September, Ruby Frank was arrested and charged with six counts of felony child abuse, as was her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Police have been notified after one of Ruby's malnourished sons made an escape out a window in Jody's home with his arms and legs covered in duct tape. He had gone to a neighbor's house seeking food and water and help. The 911 caller said that the child looked very afraid and was obviously covered in wounds. When the police arrived at Jody Hildebrand's home, where all of the children were, another child was found in a similar physical condition as the first child. After Ruby and Jody's arrest, the internet comment sections were filled with things like about time and finally. And it didn't stop there with Ruby's despicable behavior. I don't know how true all of this is, and I will speculate on it in a moment, but after her arrest, Ruby despicably attempted to defend herself by claiming that the eldest child, the boy who had been made to sleep on the beanbag chair for several months, had actually been abusing his siblings and molested several of his family members and neighbors. She alleged that this child had been looking at porn since he was three years old. And this abuse, according to Ruby, led to other children taking on the same behavior, and they too began participating in sexual abuse. If this is the case, if there is a child specifically as young as three who is displaying this kind of sexual aggression, I'm no expert, but from what I know, this usually means that that child has had a history of sexual assault themselves because a child typically doesn't already have that sort of information or urge or any sort of education to truly know what they're doing. So it is a parent's responsibility then to, one, figure out what is going on with your child and make sure that they are not being abused. Figure out maybe where they learned some of this behavior from. I don't even know how a three-year-old would be able to get on Google to access porn. Or, I mean, maybe he's finding magazines. I don't know. It, it just seems... That is the red flag to me, that these parents did not recognize that clearly one of their children is disturbed. If he is, in fact, displaying this kind of behavior, 
and that the way to protect your son and protect the rest of your kids isn't by punishing him by making him sleep on a beanbag chair and sending him to one of those terrible troubled teen wilderness camps. What you're supposed to do is send your kid to a psychologist and figure out what's going on, find maybe the right place for them to go and heal and to relearn how to behave with their family and so on and so forth. I just don't feel like the way she went about punishing her child is conducive to any sort of healing or to correcting of this behavior in any way. And it actually just screams a lot of red flags about what else those children were possibly faced with in their daily lives. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Ruby's case in particular is an extreme example of the abuses that can occur behind the scenes of a vlogger family account. But it isn't an isolated incident. In 2019, Michelle Hobson was arrested following reports of abuse and torture of her seven adopted children. She would physically abuse these children when they didn't perform to her standards for their YouTube channel, Fantastic Adventures. In 2017, Mike and Heather Martin were arrested after uploading a series of quote-unquote prank videos to their YouTube channel called Daddy05, which showed the parents mentally and physically abusing their children. This is a big one. I really, really don't like most of the parent prank videos that I see online because I don't know if if it's my own childhood trauma speaking here, but I hated being pranked, especially by adults, because they were really good at it. There was one time that I was like spending the day pranking my uncle with a variety of different ridiculous things. And I was pretty young, probably like five years old. And to get back at me, he filled my bed with dried, just white beans. And I immediately started sobbing. And I was like, how could you do that to me? Like, I was so sensitive and so mad that he got me back. But I really remember feeling like betrayed in that moment. That felt very real to me as a kid. So I can't help but watch some of these prank videos and be like, no, your kids are actually really scared by what you're doing. The most prevalent example that I can think of in regards to this right now is that trend that's going around of parents smacking the egg on their kid's head and then having them like scream and cry or hit their parent in response. Like that's really scary. That's not something a kid is expecting. And I feel like you're generally told not to purposefully startle your kids. Like having a little bit of fun or like, Halloween spooky boo or whatever is fine but like legitimately scaring your child I think is psychological abuse in my opinion it's so messed up it creates such a level of distrust in the kids and I also just don't think it sets a very good example of how to treat each other kids don't understand the nuances of pranks and sarcasm and things like that so I feel like they take it all really literally and it's got to be really hard for them to understand Okay, now I'm going to get into the prevalence of evangelical Christian family influencers because I feel like most of the mom influencers and family vlogs that I come across and that I did come across in preparation for this episode had a very specific type. They were blonde, they were white, they were usually fairly wealthy, and they were typically very, very religious. And their specific religion, a lot of the times, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church. 
And the Mormon church in and of itself holds a lot of emphasis on personal branding from what I've learned and also using whatever means necessary you have to spread the message of the church. So if one of the skills you feel you possess would be to have a family vlog or, you know, become a momfluencer, this is seen as a way to spread an evangelical Christian message to a large audience of people. The Mormon faith itself holds a lot of importance in family, community, and wholesome living. Put big quotation marks around everything that I just said. They have a very strict code of conduct, which includes abstaining from caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, premarital sex, and so on. And these beliefs shape the way a Mormon person lives their lives both on and offline. And by showing their daily lives in these videos, they're living by example. They're showing the world how to walk with Christ and your family. I don't know. I'm not a religious person, so I don't know the lingo that they use, but it is this kind of like perfect example of what a Mormon family should look like. And another reason why I think it's so prevalent that there are so many Mormon momfluencers out there is because they typically have the time and ability to work in social media because they're forced to stay home with their children anyway. And becoming an influencer is seen as like an amazing way to get a supplemental income. So Mormon momfluencers like Ruby are able to spread their incredibly conservative religious views to large amounts of people, which both resonates with a lot of other Mormon or religiously conservative people who are watching the videos, but it also really normalizes a lot of this behavior even to people who aren't conservatives or religious. I was listening to an episode of a podcast I like called Crime Writers On, and they were discussing the documentary series Shiny Happy People, which really focuses heavily on the Duggar family from that show 19 Kids and Counting on TLC. And one of the hosts, Rebecca, made a really, really good point that stuck out to me when listening to that episode. And she blames the rise and normalization of white supremacy in this country on TV shows like 19 Kids and Counting and based on a lot of these family vlogs that are so kind of like outwardly, look at how we live our lives differently and it's something that people either like ogle at and see as some odd family but then they're like oh look at the but they are also well behaved they're so polite look at them all in line playing violin together or people who actually lived like the Duggars could already be validated in their belief system because they were seeing it on TV so either way it's really rationalizing and normalizing this purity culture and traditional family values that is really, really based in a lot of both the evangelical Christian beliefs, but now also in a lot of the right-wing political beliefs that this country holds. So having this family on television every week or watching a lot of these YouTube family vloggers all the time, it really is normalizing this sort of white supremacist way of life to people, even if it's not something that they're normally used to seeing. All right, there's no way I could do this episode without talking about Ryan. If you don't know who Ryan is, Ryan is like one of the, if not the highest paid kids in YouTube. And I should say his parents <laughs> are the highest paid parents in YouTube based on their kid. And Ryan has a line of toys. He has a TV show. You can see his face at Target. It is an absolute mania. It is Ryan mania. And this kid shot to fame on his channel, Ryan's World, which started off as Ryan's Toy Review, which mostly features him unboxing toys on camera. But then in the years to come, it would also be like him and his parents playing The Floor is Lava or other games. But a lot of it is about Ryan receiving excessive amounts of toys and him unboxing them and playing with them. In 2019, his parents made $26 million off of Ryan, and he was only eight years old at the time. Ryan had new videos up 
practically every single day. This is very, very common with a lot of these family influencers. And that means that this kid is working around the clock while his parents reap all of the financial benefits. When looking online, it seems like his parents have crafted quite a cute little YouTube origin story for their son, one that really makes it seem like this child is the one that's running the show. His mother said that when Ryan was just three years old, they were watching videos on YouTube, and he turned to her and said, how come I'm not on YouTube when all the other kids are? So in response, she then quit her job as a high school chemistry teacher to work on the YouTube channel full time. Okay, I see so many problems in this because I really hate when parents are like, my kid said this. And it's like, your kid didn't say that. Your child did not speak that eloquently. And sometimes kids do say really profound things or have really profound questions. Like this little boy is asking why there's all these other little kids on his tablet and he's not in the tablet as well. I feel like that would be a very valid question for any kid who is exposed to a lot of different YouTube videos. But I feel like then it has to be the responsibility of the parent to decide whether or not they're actually going to go through with making these videos. And to me, it just seems like the parents were all too willing to kind of drop everything in their lives to make Ryan this focal point and make a lot of money off of him because they saw how unbelievably successful these channels could be. And I also feel like as the parent, you have the right to say no and explain to your child why it may not be a good idea for them to have that kind of presence on the internet. Like you have the right to say no and protect your child. But I think in Ryan's case, it's very, very obvious that it's the parents who are running the show and who are very, very excited about all of this because they actually legally changed their last name before they launched the channel to Kaji. So it would match the name of the channel, Ryan Kaji. But this also isn't to say that kids are not seeing becoming an influencer or famous YouTuber as being a viable career option. A study by Harris Pohl and Lego showed that children aged 8 to 12 are three times more likely to be interested in being a YouTuber when they grow up as they are being an astronaut. Which is so fucking sad. Space is so much cooler than YouTube. While I can't find any information or evidence online that speaks directly on Ryan's exploitation, it just seems obvious to me, and it's been one of the reasons why if I see any of the kids that I nanny watching any of his videos, I always strongly suggest we find something else to watch because I just feel bad for this child. The parents seem much too focused on their kids and this career path for my own comfort level. And now that Ryan's getting older, they're getting their younger twin daughters into their own channel, starting this whole process over again. It just seems really, really creepy. It makes me uncomfortable when parents are too into their children's passions. And in many cases, like with Ryan, it really seems like it's the parents that are more passionate about their YouTube careers than the kids are. I'll talk about this more in a bit, but there is this person named McCarty who has also done a lot of research on this subject who says, a lot of people see these channels and think it's all fun and games, but there are estimates that some of these large accounts are the sole source of income for the family. It's a tricky conflict of interest when your boss are also your parents. And that really hit home with me. These kids are literally living with their bosses. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have to ask for permission to rest or just do your own thing or even feel like you had the ability to speak freely about what your needs are when your parent is your boss. And on top of that, children don't always know what their needs are. They're just listening to their parent, telling them whatever they need to do. And they're learning these coping mechanisms for themselves because they're not able to actually rely on their parents to love them and care for them and look out for them as much as they are for their stupid YouTube channel. So after we've gotten into all of those examples, let's talk about some of the major issues in the world of parent influencers. As minors, most of the kids in these videos do not have the ability to consent to these daily videos documenting every part of their lives. 
Many parent vloggers will push cameras in their kids' faces during times of crisis, like during sickness or injury or exposing their vulnerability for all to witness. Another video that Ruby Frank once posted was all about her daughter's first period. Like, please don't do that. These kids could someday feel embarrassed or troubled that some of their most intimate moments were shared with the world. But that video will never go away because the internet is permanent. They are not responsible for creating their own digital footprint. On top of that, publicly releasing a child's image on social media discloses personal information that is dangerous to users online. These children are left open to the view of any pedophile with a computer or phone, and there is no way to track who is consuming these videos and for what purpose. According to a study from the Wall Street Journal, Stanford, and the University of Michigan, Instagram has become a vast pedophile network. Apparently, much of the child sexual abuse images found online are of real kids taken offline and photoshopped or otherwise retouched, which is just so fucking disgusting for me. And this is something that I've had to learn more about and navigate as a person who takes care of children because I do have a lot of parents who are okay with me sharing pictures of their kids on my Instagram and on Facebook and things like that because they do so themselves. Not anything obviously that would be embarrassing or that would disclose too much information about them or anything like that but basic photos is totally fine. But I've even realized that every once in a while when I do check who looks at my story, if I'm seeing that there's like some strange men or some people that I don't know looking at my story and I've got a picture of me and one of my kiddos up, it starts to make me feel a little bit worried. I just don't like it. There was a few times that a guy had liked my story when it was a picture of me and a kid and it's not someone that I know personally. So that really was a red flag for me. And that was when I decided that if I am going to post pictures of any of my kids online that I'll use emojis over their faces and things like that because I don't want to be the reason for any pain or exploitation of any child that I love and care for. The thought of their image getting into the wrong hands is absolutely terrifying to me. And I just feel too protective of my kids. And I actually learned in my research that this is also referred to as digital kidnapping, which is when a stranger on the internet steals a photo of a minor on the internet and may pretend to be the child's parent. That's also terrifying. One woman who went by Cam in an article for Teen Vogue, who was once a child of parent influencers, shared that once she and her mother had returned from riding bikes when she was only 12 years old, they received a message from a man who said they had been watching them. This caused Cam to begin experiencing severe anxiety and was afraid to leave the house. Cam testified in court on behalf of House Bill 1627, which I will get more into momentarily, saying, I plead with you to be the voice of this generation of children because I know firsthand what it's like to not have a choice in which a digital footprint you didn't create follows you around for the rest of your life. Thankfully, there are people out there who have begun to work toward making YouTube a safer and more equal place for children. I mentioned Chris McCarty a little bit earlier, and they are an undergraduate at the University of Washington, and they've launched a campaign to change the way kids are compensated for their appearances on their parents' social media accounts and vlogs. Their campaign is called Quit Clicking Kids, which is aiming to stop people from using children on social media for monetary gain in 2022. And McCarty is basing a lot of this off of the 1939 Coogan Law. The Coogan Law was named after a child actor named Jackie Coogan, who was discovered by Charlie Chaplin in 1919 and was cast in the comedian's film The Kid. Jackie Coogan became incredibly successful as a little child star, and in the 1920s, Jackie Mania was in full swing, and a wave of merchandise even came out with his image on it. He was kind of like the Ryan of the 1920s. When he was 21, his father passed away and his film roles were beginning to dry up. 
And this is when Jackie realized that he had been left with none of the earnings that he had worked so hard his entire childhood for. This was because at the time, under California law, the earnings of the minor belonged solely to the parents. Coogan sued his mother and his former manager, and as a result, the Coogan Law was enacted. The first edition of the Coogan Law wasn't without its flaws, though, and it took many, many years advocating for the rights of child performers since then to create more protections. In 2000, changes to the law affirmed that earnings made by minors in the entertainment industry are the property of the minor, not their parents. But since a minor cannot legally control their own money, California law governs their earnings and creates a fiduciary relationship between the parents and the child. This also requires that 15% of all minors' earnings must be set aside in a blocked trust account, commonly known as a Coogan account. But the Coogan law has absolutely nothing to do with children who perform on social media, and McCarty wants to change that. In February of this year, Washington State Legislature began to look at House Bill 1627, which aims to ensure that children who are heavily featured in online content have a right to financial compensation for their work. This bill would help empower those children to maintain their privacy by requesting deletion of videos and other content they're featured in once they reach the age of majority, which seems like a nice gesture, but I don't know. Everything lives forever on the internet, so I don't even know if it's going to go away fully, even if you delete it when the kid turns 18. I don't know. I really can't bring home the fact enough that kids on YouTube and TikTok do not have the same protections under child labor laws as children working in movies and television. Children working in social media for their parents have no cap on how many hours they can be forced to work, no obligation for parents to set money aside for them and no recourse for children to later gain control over their image and personal information. One of the witnesses at the first hearing for this bill was once herself a child of a family YouTube channel, and she detailed how having their image and intimate details of their life shared on the internet as a child has hindered them in creating a digital footprint they had no control over. She said if you Google her name, to this day the first thing that comes up are images of herself as a child in a bikini. This woman's first period was also on display on her family's page, as well as other private medical information about her. McCarty believes that working at the state level is the fastest way to make changes in the industry of content creation. This year, lawmakers in Illinois passed the first legislation of its kind in the country to make sure that children being featured in any online content will be guaranteed a chunk of the profits. The law, which is an amendment to the state's existing child labor laws, entitles child influencers to a percentage of the earnings made from the content they're featured in and held in a trust until they turn 18, much like the Coogan Law. This bill will also allow teenagers over the age of 18 to take legal action against their parents if they were featured in monetized social media videos and not properly compensated. The idea for this bill came from a child who experienced all of this herself who was just 15 years old at the time and decided to write to her senator, Democrat Dave Kohler, after coming across endless online content featuring children during the pandemic. She said, I realized that there's a lot of exploitation that can happen with the world of kid-fluencing, and I realized that there was absolutely zero legislation in place to protect them. This law is not meant for parents who share photos of their kids on social media for family and friends, or even those who post a viral video. This is for families who make their income off of a child vlogging and family vlogging. I also read an article from the University of Chicago, which suggests that we use the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is created by the United Nations, as a roadmap to develop legal framework to protect children of family influencers. The CRC is an international human rights treaty that sets out the civil, political, economic, social, health, and cultural rights of children and was signed in 1989. The CRC has been ratified by every single eligible country other than the United States. The CRC's central principles are non-discrimination, devotion to the best interests of the child, the right to life, survival, and development, and respect for the views of the child. Article 3 of the CRC encourages state lawmakers to develop stricter regulations to address the risks of child exploitation and inappropriate child labor practices in the child and family influencer industry. 
This could mean that social media companies need to do better to regulate content that includes children and to closely monitor content featuring children for signs of abuse or endangerment by the parent influencers. Article 12 requires that state parties assure that the child is capable of forming their own views and the right to express those views freely, and that those views are given due weight in accordance to the age and maturity of the child. This indicates that even if a child says they want to participate in a video, they may be too young to comprehend why that may be dangerous. People who are pro-family influencer argue that the parents have the child's best interests at heart and can consent for them, much like in every other aspect of a child's life. And that's true in many ways. I mean, if you're a parent, you can choose how to raise your own child in any way that you see fit. But that doesn't mean that everyone is informed enough to make the best decision for their child. Article 16 addresses embarrassing, sensitive, and personal information being released. This requires that no child should be subjected to arbitrary or unlawful interference with their privacy, family, home, or correspondence. It also states that a child has the right to protection of the law against such attacks. And kids can fight back against the many parent influence out there who publicly share their children's medical, emotional, and developmental challenges under the guise of disability awareness and advocacy, something that I didn't even get into in this episode. Article 31 writes that a child has the right to rest, leisure, and playtime. And this is one of the things that I was thinking about the most during the research for this episode this week. When a parent has chosen to be an influencer for a living, kids feel like they always have to be on. And even leisurely activities can become work for these children. So they can't enjoy them to their full capacity due to their pressure to perform. Kids have no idea when their influencer mom is going to shove a camera into their face and when they have to perform for the public. They're never allowed to truly be their authentic selves. There are rules set in place for children in film and television regarding how many hours they can be on set or in front of a camera. But the same thing should be required of family influencers. The children are performers who generate a profit, so they should be treated as child performers under the law. I just think it's also going to be really, really hard to keep track of all of these things. And there has to be, I mean, there's got to be more legislation involved in how we are actually going to enforce a lot of these things. Because when it comes to a film set, you know, there's a union involved and you have to have certain people on set for children, such as teachers and parent guardians and so on and so forth. And all of those things are really, really regulated by the union. And I don't know how they're going to be able to do that when a family influencer's set is their home. How are we able to monitor the people who are putting their children's image and personal information online without it being a breach of their privacy? And how would we ensure that this monitoring is even thorough enough? I know people are kind of trying to find clues in the backs of videos to see if these children are being abused or if they're okay. And in the case of Ruby Frank, it was very, very obvious. And in some of these other cases, it's really, really obvious as well. But I think that there's so many times that the wool is pulled over our eyes. There are so many internet scams out there. There are so many inauthentic people who are releasing things on the internet. So I think that The most important thing that I got out of this was that I will not support any sort of parenting influencer YouTube channel or Instagram or anything because it truly does seem like it does more harm than good to the child later on in life. I really hope that due to some of these legal changes, particularly in Illinois, I hope it can happen in more states as well that these kids' finances will be looked after as well. I've known quite a few people who were child actors who had struggles with getting the money that they deserved once they turned 18 because their parents misused their funds. And it's a real issue. It affects their lives. And a kid who spends their entire life working deserves to be compensated for that work, but also deserves to be protected while they're doing so. It is such a messy, complicated 
world on the internet and it is still so much like the wild west that you just have to be so careful about the image that you put up of yourself that you put up of children because it truly does live forever what are your thoughts on these parent influencers these family vloggers what are your instincts on them have you watched them in the past do you watch them now did you follow the ruby frank case i would really really love to hear all of your thoughts on this episode and you can email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist and follow me there. You can also reach out with any future episode suggestions that you have for me. I will always love to take some good episode topic suggestions. Also, don't forget to check me out on Patreon if you want a little bit of extra content and you want to support the show. You can go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist and join the angry feminist book club at the $5 level, or you can become a feminist fave at the $8 level. Be sure to check out the first recap episode that will be coming up within the next day or so on Patreon where, where I will be chatting even more about parent influencers and so on and so forth and chat about anything that I may have missed from this episode. Also, if you like the show and you think others would too, the best way you can support the show is by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show and also rating the show on Spotify if you prefer to listen there as well. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.